The following audio is from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. More information about Axe is available at axechurchleander.com. Well, awesome. Well, it is uh, good to be back with y'all today. Uh, for those of you that don't know, I was, I was gone last week, so I'm, I'm happy to be back here. And if uh, this is your, your first time with us, just know that, that we are in a series right now called The Story. And uh, in the story, what we're doing is we're going through the entire narrative of the Bible uh, throughout this whole year. And so this spring, we're looking at the Old Testament, and then in the fall, we'll look at the New Testament. And so we've been at this game for a, a few weeks now. And, uh, and what we saw is we started in the beginning, God creates everything, He creates it good, but then humanity rebels against Him. But then right off the bat, God sets forth a plan of redemption to bring his creation back to him, to redeem and restore his creation, and that the beginning of that redemption plan takes place through a particular nation, uh, the nation of Israel. And so we've seen them kind of start as, as just one guy, actually, and then expand to a family, and then kind of to a tribe, and then kind of to a, a, a tribe of, of collective nations. But today we actually see a, a shift in the story. And this is when it goes from being just a, a nation of associated tribes to being a kingdom with a king, and being a kingdom with a king. And, and even though that, that may be like, well, how is that going to relate to us today, right? Like, we don't have a king. We're, you know, we, we took care of that guy back in 1792, and, and so that's, that's, is that right? No, who cares? All right, so we're moving along. Uh, back in the day, and, uh, and so we're, you know, we don't have a king, so, so how do we relate to that? Uh, but, but here's the thing. What this story does, what we looked at today in, in 1 Samuel 8, is it teaches us a lot about the human condition, it teaches us a lot about our propensity as people to put something or someone up on a pedestal. That we have this thing in us that puts something or someone up on a pedestal. Here's what I mean. So uh, last weekend, I wasn't here because I was, I was in Lansing, Michigan, and uh, I, was, I was speaking at a, a youth event there, and it was for about like, like, it wasn't, you know, like a huge event. It was like 300 middle school youth from kind of a, around uh, the Midwest. And so I was, I was the main speaker there. And then they, they had a, a band that led worship. Uh, but this band, their, their full-time gig is they're, they're touring musicians. But then they have a side, side project where they run production for major festivals uh, throughout the country. And they usually run the second stage at, at major festivals. And so for being such a small gathering, the production value of this event was like, way higher than anything I've ever really been a part of before. It was just really incredible, the lights and the sound and the, the screen, and it was just, it was awesome. And, uh, and so it was cool, but it had a really weird effect on the kids. Like, really weird. Here's what I mean. So I, I, I spoke uh, Friday night, and then Saturday morning I spoke, and, and after I was done speaking, I was, I was just hanging out afterwards, after we had our little worship thing, and, and I'm talking with the kids and just, just connecting with them. And I noticed as I'm talking with the kids, this, like, line started to form behind the kids I was talking to. And then I realized that like all these kids had markers in their hands and they came up to me and were asking for my signature. Like I, I kid you, and I kept looking to see if there's like someone behind me who was important. You know, like I was like, do you, you mean that guy? Like what, why do you want that? And I'm not kidding. I signed autographs, right? Like, so if anyone wants one afterwards, yeah, I guess let me know. But, um, but it was like cell phone cases, I signed a kid's hat, like a piece of paper, I took some selfies, like it, was a, it was the weirdest thing. And, and I was just like, what? why is that? I was like, these kids only knew, right? Like the, the most exciting thing my signature is used for is like approving a $25 expense report. You know, like this is not, this is not a big deal. Uh, and, and, and I'm not picking on, but these, they, they put me on a pedestal, right? They saw the lights, they saw the sound, they said, oh, that guy seems important, let's put him on a pedestal. And, and I'm not picking on this because I get it right? Like, like we have this propensity to do that. 
We have this tendency to say, hey, there's got to be some guy, some gal, some person, some thing, some way of doing things out there that if that's in place, that if they're calling the shots, they know the answers, they know what's going on, then everything's going to turn out okay. There's got to be someone out there that's got it figured out. And if they were actually calling the shots, everything would turn out okay. And so for you, it could be a politician or a celebrity, or it could be an ideal or a philosophy or, or some sort of religious activity. But we all have this, this impulse inside of us that says, if this person, if this thing was really in control, if it was really up top calling the shots, then the world would be okay. Then everything would be working out the way it was supposed to. If, if, if that was there, we'd be all right. So another way to put that is we all want a king. We all want a king. We all want someone in that place of authority saying, this is right, this is wrong. This is what the rules you're to live by. These are the rules you're not to live by. Everybody wants a king. And that's what we see in our text. Everybody wants a king. Second thing we see is everybody gets a king. The third thing is, but there's only one true thing, true king. Okay, everybody wants a king, everybody gets a king, but there's only one true king. All right, so let's get digging into our text. Uh, if you look with me, 1 Samuel 8, 4 through 5, everybody wants a king. It says this, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old. Really nice way to greet someone. Um, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. All right, and so the, the leaders of the nation of Israel uh, approach Samuel, God's prophet at that time, and they say, hey, listen, you're getting old. Your sons aren't so great. We want to have a king like all the other nations. We want him to judge us, to rule over us. We want us to have a guy in this place to call the shots, to settle things, to make things right. Israel asks for a king, and here's why. See, up until this point, Israel's been a, a theocracy, okay? So their, their king has literally been God, that they haven't really had a, a, a structured government, haven't had a, a political system in place. It's just kind of been God. And, and so when they, they run into an issue, when there's a problem, uh, God raises up a human representative, either a judge or a prophet, to deliver them from that, pro that problem, to rescue them from whatever's going on. And so that's how things have been working. And so 1 Samuel chapter 7, just right before this, that's what happens is, is God raises up Samuel to deliver the people of Israel uh, from the Philistine army. And so Samuel's doing well. But then we saw in the beginning of our text that Samuel appoints his sons as judges over the nation of Israel. He appoints them as, as, as rulers over the nation of Israel. And he did this without God's command. And his sons were bad news. They were corrupt, they took bribes, they, they, they didn't deliver justice properly so that they were a mess. They're, they're bad dudes. And so, understandably, the people of Israel say, hey, we want someone else in charge. Like, this isn't working, Samuel, we want someone else in charge. But here's the problem. Instead of them looking to God, instead of them trusting in his ways, instead of trusting in him to deliver them, and waiting on him to do what he's going to do, they get overly pragmatic. And they say, listen, I'm not, we're not waiting around for God to do his thing. We're looking around us. We see all the cool kids have a king. We want a king too. Let's make that a reality. Let's forget depending upon God. Let's forget letting him be the king. And let's do our own thing. Let's get our own king to call the shots for us. It'll be a lot easier that way. And see, the issue is not that they want a king. The issue is that they want a king other than God. 
They want a king other than God. They want a ruler to protect them, to defend them, to determine what's right and wrong. They want a king to do that that isn't God. That's the problem. This is what God says they're doing. Look with me at verses 6 and 7. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Now recognize how basic to the human experience this story is. Just think about it for a second. The people reject God as king. They reject him as the one who has absolute rule, absolute reign, absolute control over their lives, the one who calls the shots completely. They say, no, 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 God, we don't want you to do that. We want you to have a different role. See, they don't get rid of God completely. They just change his role. They move him from a king to a consultant. Hey, for the day in, day out practical stuff, let's have a king call the shots. But when things get a little hairy, when, you know, there's a death in the family, when we're uncomfortable, then we'll turn to God then we'll make this a reality. Then he can be here, right? They turn God from a king to a consultant. And is this not our culture? Is this not what happens all the time? Right? I, I've talked about this a couple weeks ago. Like, most people believe in God. Most, that's not an issue for most people. Most people believe there is a God. But a God who's king, a God whose rule is absolute, a God who's actually calling the shots, whoa, Ooh, that may impose on what I want to do, right? And so, so we move him into a consultant role. We all do this. We turn God from a king into a consultant. And so when we do that, we actually prop something else up as king. And you say, what are you talking about? Okay, what does it mean you prop something else up as king? What does that look like? Here's what that looks like. Next time you're sad, next time you're angry, next time you're upset, next time something isn't going well in your life, and you start to think, this is how you tell what your king is, if you start to think this sentence, if only. However you finish that, that's your king, okay? If, if only this person did this. If only this situation worked out this way instead. If only this worked the way I wanted it to. If only. However you finish that sentence, that's your true king. That's what's really dictating your life. If only. Everyone has a king. Everyone chooses something to rule over their lives. There's something you put on a pedestal and that rules over your life. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. The record of kings is abysmal, but where men are forbidden to honor a king, they honor millionaires, athletes, or film stars instead, even famous prostitutes or gangsters. For spiritual nature, like bodily nature, will be served. Deny it food, and it will gobble poison. We see in our text and throughout Scripture, we all want a king, and God lets us get a king. He lets us get a king. Look with me at verse 9. God's speaking to Samuel, and he says this. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So God says, okay, they, they want a king. All right, fine. Let them have a king. But just, would you, would you warn them first? Like just before they, they dive into this, before everything falls apart, would you just let them know what's going to happen? See if that'll change their minds. 
And so then in verses 10 through 18, Samuel warns what will happen if they get a king. And God says, when you get a king, he's going to do what all kings do. He's going to take. That's the word that's used six different times. We're not going to read verses 10 through 18, but six different times God says the king will take. If you have your Bible open, you can see it, but I'll have them listed up here. He says he's going to take your sons for armies. He's going to take your daughters to work in his palace. He's going to take the best of your fields. He's going to take your grain and your wine. He's going to take your servants. He's going to take your flocks. See, this is what every false king does. Every false king takes and takes and takes. That's how kings work. They take. And see, this is something our culture actually gets really well. Uh, so Melissa and I, we just saw Birdman this last week. Have any of y'all seen that? Excellent. Okay, so it like cleaned up at the Academy Awards and, and for good reason. It's a really, really good movie. Um, and, and for those of you who, who haven't seen it, let me just give you the basic plot. So, so Michael Keaton plays this, uh, this I know, Michael Keaton, uh, plays this guy who's a, a washed up actor uh, who was a, a superhero called Birdman. That was the, the films he starred in, Birdman 1 through 3. And, uh, and he's trying to resurrect his career by putting on a play on Broadway that, that he's written He's starred in and he's uh, directing, and it's it's based on uh, Raymond Culver's uh, "What We Talk About." Raymond Carver, excuse me, uh, short story "What We Talk About When We Talk About Love." And what happens in this movie is is the the whole time he's working on this, trying to get this together, is you hear this voice in his head, and this voice keeps telling him that he's that he's worthless, that he's not good enough, that he's wasting his time, that he's irrelevant, that that's what's going on in his head. And then there's this point in the film where he gets in an argument with his twenty-something-year-old uh, daughter. Uh, Sam, played by Emma Stone, and, uh, and they, they get an argument, and she says, Dad, what you're doing isn't important. And how he responds to her is really telling as to what his king is. So I just want to read his line. He says this. She says, it's not important. He says, it's important to me, all right? Maybe not to you or your cynical friends whose only ambition is to go viral. But to me, to me, this is God. This is my career. This is my chance to do some work that actually means something. And then his daughter responds and just cuts to the core here. And she says this, means something to who? You're doing a play based on a book that was written 60 years ago for a thousand rich old white people whose only real concern is going to be where they go to have their cake and coffee when it's over. And let's face it, Dad, it's not for the sake of art. It's because you want to feel relevant again. Well, there's a whole world out there where people fight to be relevant every day and you act like it doesn't even exist. You're the one who doesn't exist. You're doing this because you're scared to death, like the rest of us, that you don't matter. And you know what? You're right. You don't. It's not important. You're not important. Get used to it. And it's like this moment in the film you see where his life is just crumbling where everything's falling apart. He's lost his job. He's lost his career. He's lost his family. His wife and daughter are estranged to him. He's lost his sense of self-worth, any validation that he had. And why did that happen to him? Because his career was his king. Because relevance was his king. And every false king just takes and takes and takes until you have nothing left. That's what happens. You say, okay, that's a movie. What does that look like in real life? Well, let me tell you what it looks like in mine. Uh, one of the most frustrating things for me as a pastor is like I have this sort of 
constant is too strong, but very regular feeling of powerlessness where uh, I'm very blessed to walk through some, some hard things in people's life. I'm very blessed to, to walk alongside some, some hard things in people's life. But so often there's nothing I can actually do about it, right? There's nothing I can actually do to change the situation. Like I can listen, I can pray, I can be present, but I can't, I can't ever fix it. And it drives me nuts. And so often the king that creeps in my own life is my own Messiah complex, that, that I answer the words, if only, if, if only I could fix this, then I'll know I'm doing something useful, right? If, if only I could help this person, if only I could do that, then I'll know that my ministry actually matters. If only, if only I could do that. See, that's a false king. It's a false king and it does what every false king does. It takes and takes and takes. And you know this, right? If you let your family be king, you let that be what you live for, they will never live up to your expectations. They'll continually disappoint you. You let comfort be your king. Get ready to never be at peace again. You let success be your king and you will always feel inadequate. Let acceptance be your king and you'll never feel loved enough. Again and again and again. Let morality be your king and you won't be good enough. Let an ideology be your king and watch yourself get separated from anyone who doesn't think or look or act like you. You see, this is what false kings do. They take and they take and they take. And yet, we insist on living for them. We insist on living for them. This is what we see in, in this text. Uh, God lays out the warning. He says, this is what the king's going to do. But then the people respond to the warning, verse 19 through 22. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. You see, everybody wants a king, everybody gets a king, but there's something we see here. God gives us a way out. The true king. The true king. See, I've already mentioned this, but God was never against the idea of Israel having a king. In Genesis, in Deuteronomy, in Numbers, he says, Israel, you're going to have a king, but it's going to be one of my choosing. It's going to be a guy after my own heart. His rule's going to be good. It's going to be just. It's going to be right. And that king was not the first guy that Israel chose, Saul. His bad news didn't work out well. That king was David. And he certainly wasn't a perfect guy by any means. But God promised that through him, that through the line of David, he would send a king who would be perfect. He would send a king whose reign would last forever. Look at what he says to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. God's talking to him about this future king and he says this, And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. 
When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. So God says here, hey, there's going to be a king, and there's going to be a king whose reign is going to last forever, and in him, you're going to find rest. In him, you're going to find security. In him, you're going to find peace. You see, this text was written a thousand years before Jesus is on the scene, but this text is pointing exactly to him. That he's the king who's going to come. That he's going to be the one who judges what is right and wrong. That he'll protect you from your enemies. That he's the one in whom you'll flourish. And see, what's amazing about the king that God describes here is that unlike our false kings, this is a king who doesn't take and take and take. But instead, Jesus is a king who gives and gives and gives. He says this about himself, that in the Gospels, John the Baptist's disciples run up to him and they say, hey, Jesus, are, are you the guy we should expect? Are you the king that we're looking for? Or should we look for another? And Jesus says, this is how you know I'm the right king, I give. He says, the blind receive their sight. The lepers are cleansed. The lame walk. The dead rise. And the poor have good news preached to them. He doesn't take, he gives. He's the only king who gives. And see, and that's why Jesus says, whoever wants to save his life must lose it. Or anyone who tries to, to save his life, who wants to find his life, will lose it. But anyone who loses his life for my sake will find it. What's he saying there? He's saying, hey, you give your life to any other king to serve any other purpose and watch it get taken away from you. But he says, hey, you give yourself fully and completely to me. You live completely under me. And watch as you receive everything. And see, Jesus is the only king who gives. And we know this because he doesn't just give us hope. He doesn't just give us peace. He doesn't give us forgiveness. He gave us himself. He gave us himself. He's the king who gives. You see, I don't know if you caught this verse 14. If you can click to the next one, Tyler. Verse 14, it says, I'll be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. That would never have been said about an ancient king. They're not the ones getting beat. They're the ones doing the beatings, right? That never would have been the case. This is talking about Jesus, the king who goes to the cross. The king who gives of himself on the cross. That he gives himself completely for you. He doesn't take, he gives. I mean, don't you, like, want to live for a king like that? In Matthew 13, there's a, a parable that Jesus tells about the kingdom of God, and it's a really short one. Uh, but, but it goes like this. He says, a, a man uh, found a treasure in a field. A really great treasure in a field. And, and with great joy, is what he says, the man went and sold everything he had and bought that field. That's it. That's the whole parable. And Jesus, normally, he interprets his parables, right? He, he explains to us, uh, you know, how they, how they work. But he leaves this one kind of open to interpretation because there's two ways you can read it. One way 
is, is that you say, hey, this is about me and the kingdom. I got to sell everything I have, give all of who I am to enter into the kingdom. And there's definitely truth to that. There's value to that. But this is a, a painting by an artist named uh, Edward Riojas. And um, I love what he does here. This is his painting of the parable. And I don't know if you can see it, but down here it says, for joy he went and sold all that he had and bought the field. And who's he have as the man who's buying the field? You can say it. Yeah, it's church. It's Jesus, right? Um, yeah, it's Jesus. And what's the treasure? I don't know if you can see that. It's a coffin. And so what's he telling us? He's saying that, that Jesus is the man and that you're the treasure. That with joy, Jesus gave all he had, everything he had to bring you to him. Not because you're great. You're a carcass. But he did all of that to bring you to him. He's the only king who gives. That's our king. King who joyfully gave everything for you. So won't you live completely for him? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you're our king. You're the king who's given us everything, life and breath, forgiveness, redemption. God, we give you thanks for that. We praise your name for that. God, I pray for my friends here that they wouldn't let any false kings run their lives. They wouldn't spend their days saying, if only, but that they'd look to you, their true king, that they'd live for you, their true king, that they'd find their rest in you. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. Feel free to share this message with others and stay connected with us at axechurchleander.com.